Welcome one and all to Vision on Sound here on Fab Radio International with me, Martin Holmes. Warren Cummings is back again this week, as we are both transported back to the mid-1960s to have a chat about the obscure science fiction adventure series Undermind, an 11-part ABC television series starring Jeremy Wilkin and Rosemary Nichols. As ever with us, this sets us both off on an unexpectedly roundabout stroll through the television universe. And so, in the next hour, we'll also touch upon the work of Robert Holmes, the apocalyptic nature of special effects technicians, another obscure series called The Corridor People, which was made by Granada TV, featured John Sharp, and lasted for an astonishing four episodes in the mid-1960s. And we also touch briefly upon its contemporary spy series, The Avengers and The Prisoner, before turning our attention to modern-day children's television, as more channels are announced as being on the brink of extinction. So let's fire up our Fab Radio International time engines and head off back to the 60s, where a peculiarly analogue threat from outer space is doing its level best to undermine the nation, in a manner usually known only to those at the very heart of government. Hello, Warren. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you, Martin. And how are you diddling the old China plate? Oh, oh I'm, I'm ticking along. Are you, are you ready to do some telly talk? By Jingo, slap the thighs. It's panto time. Yes, indeed. Well, here we are. Because, I mean, this, this, this <laughs> thank God. I mean, that's what it says on the tin. That's what we're supposed to do. So we, I, mean, I suppose we better talk about television. Now, I, 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 me. Because it's all about me, as you know. Uh, I have recently been, uh, I've been delving deep into the treasures of the mid-1960s. So my television watching recently has been very 1960s uh, based. And one of the shows I picked up off the shelf was a delightful 11-part series from 1965 ITV. Mm-hmm. In fact, ABC production of a thing known as Undermind. Do you know anything about Undermind? I sat on the desk looking at me. Have you ever watched it? <laughs> <laughs> now, now you're pushing it. Now you're pushing Is it, it still sitting on the desk in its cellophane? No, it's not. I don't have any cellophane. On oh, yes, you ha- we have talked about it. But I, I, that's only because I take it off. I just don't like it on them. Yeah. Um, no, I have. It's I uncanny, have, uh, isn't it? It's that sort of shininess, but you can't see oh, it, I know. Can't see it, I know. And then you, you, then you have visions of Joe Grant and the daffodils, and it's all horribly, yes. Oh, there's a, there's an idea. <laughs> oh, yes. I'm not putting that on me, mush. <laughs> <laughs> I have seen Undermine, and I didn't know what I was getting, first of all. I bought this blind. Mm. I didn't look it up. It was, yes, it was in a network sale. Yes. And I thought, well, it's 1960s and Mm. it's drama. Mm. And I like 1960s drama Mm. because you've got kitchen sink. Mm. You've got things like the Avengers. But the Mm. Avengers came in, as you've talked about before, wonderful packages well, of many forms many forms yeah mm. starting off as this serious taut spy drama to high camp 
and from videotape to film and yeah. all sorts of transitions. I mean, that again, it, I've, I know I've said this before, but The Avengers, to me, almost epitomises the change in broadcasting across the 60s. And mm. it, of course, almost matches, you know, 61 to 69. It, it actually is a very useful barometer for lots of things in the 60s, The Avengers. It's kind of like the mean, if you like, that you can run across every day. <laughs> it's a bit like Undermined. Hmm. Because Undermine is written by Robert Banks. Mm. Robert Banks, Banks Stewart, yeah. created, yeah. yeah. However, it's very reflective of the time. And there's an interesting mm. way in which the stories are manipulated together. Mm. And they cover sort of, I'd say, about the last five years of upheaval within the country. Mm. And they they sort of package it up into little stories. Mm. Well, when I picked this up, this show, I did much the same as you did. I thought, I've heard of it as a title. Yeah. And it had been sort of bounced around. I never expected to be able to see it. I, to be honest, I was surprised it existed in its entirety. Because it's an ABC it's just, yeah. production. <laughs> it's got 11 episodes. And you think, well, there'll be about four on the disc, you know. And uh, and only two of them will be in colour. Yeah. yeah, and something <laughs> like that. There'll be something that means... And yet, here it is, an entire run of a show... It's an unusual yep. number, isn't it, of episodes? Yes. But, it's an unusual show, really. Yeah, but it's kind yeah. of... The basic gist of it is that these two people who are related but not a couple... <laughs> um, and there's a stumble, bit of... Sorry. Yes. So they stumble so across this mysterious plot to bring down the government and undermine <laughs> the entire fabric of society by strange signals coming from space that's basically the gist of it and it's so it's a science fiction piece that that's yeah. uh that sort of isn't a science fiction piece it's kind of like a crime drama investigative drama it's kind of like a spy thing but it's it's actually one of those quite rare things which is science fiction under the radar you don't realize you're watching a science fiction show absolutely and and suddenly it turns out that you are. And I think in 1965, that's a very clever piece of writing. The thing that I also quite like about it, which, uh, to skip to the end, is that the last two episodes are by Robert Holmes, who is a, yes. a big uh, writer in, in Doctor Who terms. But this is before he ever wrote for Doctor Who. So it's kind of it's kind of like nascent. It's a nascent science fiction thing <laughs> in what you might see later. But equally... It's kind of fascinating, really, just to see a writer like him before they did the thing I know him most for. And it, it, his style jumps out. And he was trusted to finish it off. Yeah. You know, he, um, in a way, I felt very sorry for him mm. to have to tie up everything at yes. the end. Because it is. There's a heck of a lot to tie up. There is. But there's the Robert Holmes' style of People are going around in twos, aren't they? They're going around in pairs, mm. and they're interacting in pairs. There's a lot of that going on. You can see that being learned, can't you? That's yeah. the beauty of it. There's a kind of learning curve going on, because you can actually see, oh, that worked in that. Because I, the, the other thing that I picked up on was the method of the, the signal coming from space and how that felt very Terror of the Autons to me, watching it. I always think it's interesting to watch, certainly, the writers that you knew their later stuff their early stuff. I mean, you see it with some of the Terence Dicks and Malcolm Hook stuff on the Avengers. You sort of see bits of it turn up in later things as well. So it's quite nice to track those things if you see what I'm getting at. Yeah, uh, well, Bob Holmes is quite prolific during 1965, mm. isn't he? 
because um, he had a feature film come out mm. called Invasion, which again is another pseudo science fiction film, mm. which is more overtly science fiction. Mm. This one caught me out. Undermine caught me out completely because mm. I didn't read. I like to do this because I like old telly. I mm. will put it in the machine and I won't read the back and I put yeah. it down. What appealed to me was it had Jeremy Wilkins in. Yeah, Jeremy Wilkins. You know, he the only thing I really knew him for was was it Kelman in yeah, Revenge of the Cybermen uh, yeah. with with his famously curled lip. Curled <laughs> lip, yes. And also um, wearing a string vest in UFO. Those yeah. are the only things that I knew him for. Mm. But he's um, he's he doesn't strike me as the most charismatic lead I've ever seen in a television series. He, he comes across as very po-faced sometimes, a little, mm. almost a little starched. Well, it's funny, actually, because throughout the series, he is basically running around with his late brother's wife. Yeah, he's hanging and, out with his... And everybody I would imagine watching it was thinking, well, they're obviously going to end up together. <laughs> And, and yet, that's but, the bit that made me laugh. They didn't, did they? No, not at all. In fact, in comes George Baker at the end. Oh, George sorry, I've just spoiled that for everybody. <laughs> Drives off with his sports car at the end. And he's like, stood there going, oh, shit. Oh, well, what a shame. <laughs> Never mind. But he, he's, Never mind. He's a very un, he really is a very uncharismatic lead. And, and I was trying to think of anybody else who might have been quite so po-faced. In, the only person I could think of was, was number six in The Prisoner. Yeah. And just, it's just that sort of stoic, very stoic acting. But then again, I put it down to the character who was playing. He was playing mm. a recruitment. Yeah, yes, that's it. The, the wacky adventures of, 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 oh, of the most exciting job a recruitment advisor. So, someone who works in HR. <laughs> and they tried to make it glamorous by saying he's just flown back from Australia, <laughs> where he helped Fantastic. people to. And they, they're all thick over there. They haven't got HR advisors. They fly people out so they can pick people to run their local McDonald's. It's incredible. <laughs> oh, God, I wouldn't like to go into the McDonald's that he's trained people for. <laughs> what do you want? <laughs> what are you here for? You have what you're given and enjoy it. But the other, obviously, the other main lead is uh, Rosemary Nichols, who later on was one third of Department S, wasn't she? And I knew you like Rosemary Nichols because mm. you like the blue lamp, don't you? Yes, of course she and she is briefly in in the blue love. She's the urchin, isn't she? She is an urchin, yes. Urchin who finds the gun. Strangely enough, what I was thinking about Rosemary Nichols though is, I mean, she was a lead in this. Um, Presumably, this is pretty much what got her the uh, gig on Department S, you know. Mm -hmm. And she's a very glamorous woman in, but but also actually they played up her to a certain extent. They played up her not being stupid, which was very, again, quite unusual for the mid-60s in these kinds of parts. You know, again, I think at this point you've got the Avengers effect starting to creep into other shows. It feels like that. But then, so she was a lead, or at least a third lead in Department S and the second lead in this, and yet her career sort of evaporates. It sort of dwindled, didn't it? Into yeah, the 70s. Early 70s, and then it just peters out, doesn't it? Mm. It doesn't go any further. But yeah, I reckon it could have gone so so much further than it did. It is amazing. I do think, actually, there are, I mean, there's obviously some scripting problems, as there always are, because all of these scripts are written by men, aren't they? And, and it's and it's an yeah, adventure and series, and she's supposed to be the wilting violet or, and whatever. Or but, tied um, to the railway yeah. track, yeah. But the other thing I like about this show 
is it kind of the episode endings are kind of enigmatic they just sort of some of the episodes. I don't know whether it's because oh, we've run out of time. We've just got to go to the credits. But but they just sort of peter out sometimes, or, or somebody will fall off something. Because like, the other thing about it is, it's the invaders, isn't it? It's the invaders. Well, if you call it the invaders, I call it it's the radio. It's the wireless version of invading the body snatchers. Mm. All these people have their minds have been because they've got unusual hearing. Again, yes, this is a this is a show where the aliens yes. can be defeated by having a hearing aid, folks. But so it's it's man eater of Surrey Green, isn't it? <laughs> but the alien invasion is is coming, and they are and these people are possessed. But there's always the who is the um who is the villain of the week? They they do a lot of people who are a little bit standoffish. Who might yeah. who might be the villain, but turn out not to be, and then the person who isn't, or the person you possibly least expect, or, or most in most cases walks out to be the villain. Or yeah. in, in most cases, the person you most expect, because <laughs> the biggest name you've never <laughs> well, heard of, or whatever. it's the biggest name. <laughs> I mean, I do like episode one because I like Jeremy Kemp mm. as well, and Jeremy Kemp typecast again mm. playing a policeman. Yes, but he, ha- um, I find. Well, he's almost playing Bob Steele because he's very, very cold, mm. isn't he? Very cold indeed. But I I like Jeremy Kemp's style of acting mm. and they do pull him around a bit in that. Well, I picked up this the set, if you like, about three years ago and I, I, I put the first one in and I watched it and I think maybe I picked, you know, Bad Afternoon or whatever. But I didn't really take to it. I, I saw episode one and I thought, mm, yeah, that's okay. I might watch the rest of that some other time. And it sat there for three years. And so when I picked it up again, I thought, oh, I'm going to have to re-watch episode one because, you know, it's three years since I watched it. Yeah. And this time I, I sat there and I sort of piled through about five on the trot. You know, it once you get into the style of it, it really does work. And it's also quite interesting when you start to compare it with other shows about that time. I mean, ABC at this time were were doing Callum, or, or they were just about to do Callum, and we're in the Good slightly... Um, and so Public Eye would have been about this time? Public Eye heading towards 66, uh, yeah. ABC towards would have Eye. just stopped doing the Avengers on, on videotape in the studio. At yeah, this, um, I was reading a little article before we mm. came on air, actually, in um, Cathay Ray Tube, mm. who were explaining that this, again, like very much like the Avengers, this was a, a bridging series mm. from going from doing it as live, mm. to doing some quality drama on some quality tape. Mm. Yeah, I was like yourself. I picked it up, put the first episode in and sat and mm. watched it and went, yeah, all right, put it back mm. again. And about 18 months later, I took it off again mm. and thought, i better give this a go mm. just to give it some justice. Mm. Because don't, don't get me wrong, I wasn't put off by, but I wasn't enamoured yeah. because I didn't it, really it was... fall into the trap of, where it was going. But as soon as I finished the second episode, I went, right, let's have another mm. one. And it does that. It's weird. And it's it's also a very interesting show. I mean, in terms of the guest stars, it's astonishing. And some of the stories they tell. I mean, the, the one in the, the church, you know, with Michael Goff. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Guess who's the villain in that one, uh, Warren? <laughs> and, of course, it's got the Bother Boys, which, again, makes me think of one of my favourite Public Eye episodes a couple of years later with Divide and Conquer where the, the, the yeah. bikers on the beach but um again the, the storylines are just are fascinating and of course the ambition of it They're, what i always love about these shows is the 
the sheer ambition of trying to do this stuff in a studio and you do yeah it's it's unavoidable you do get the old wobbly wall hey you know it's not just one particular series that had wobbly walls they all did to to a, <laughs> a, a greater or lesser extent at that time you know if someone hits the wrong wall in the wrong way it's going to move yeah but some of the the guest stars are just i mean ridiculous aren't they i mean you know tenny elevens you know patrick allen's in one Patrick Allen, Dennis Quilly. Dennis Quilly. Well, Dennis Quilly was a bit of a surprise because I thought they were setting him up to be a third lead, weren't they? And he, yeah. and he does three or four episodes and then, oh, no, he's a wrong... I'm, oh, I'm no, ruining no, this for everybody, aren't I? I'm sorry, I realised this. I, I, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, they are amazing actors, you know, in terms of that crop of 1960s talent. I think we're very, very lucky because for a lot of people, it is... They're at the transition time now of coming from stage mm. to becoming that well-known face on television. Mm. And I love watching their early work in television because there's a certain naivety mm. a lot of the time with these actors. And you're thinking, I know what you're heading towards. I know where you're going with your career. Mm. But I just love to see it bubble at the beginning mm. because they're trying to be so many things. And they're trying to be so flexible mm. in what they're doing as well. John Barron. Yes. CJ. John Barron. CJ. He's forever going to be CJ. Well, I had the really weird smashing of worlds when I was watching this. Because whilst I was watching this, I also recently watched or rewatched Whoops Apocalypse. I love Whoops Apocalypse. Yes. And the thing was that, so I ended up in the afternoon, I'd watched. John Barron being this evangelical uh, advisor to the president. The good book, the good book for fix anything, Mr. President. And then in the evening, I put on Undermined, and it was like, oh, there's John Barron again. And it's that <laughs> and thing you that you do. I don't know if maybe it's an age thing where you go, oh, what have I seen him in recently? And I think, yeah, it was this afternoon. <laughs> I often think that Boots um, Apocalypse is far too close to reality at the moment in number oh, 10. Oh, well, yes, there is, there is that. But equally, uh, John Barron never really played a lot. of. Did he play good guys? I don't think he ever did. Really, no. Did and uh, so it was no, difficult for but... me not to go when he's he, he pulls off his, his Scooby-Doo mask and, oh, it was John Barron all along. It's Marin Maltong. He'd have got away with it too if it wasn't for those pesky... <laughs> Earthlings. So that's one show that's completely ruined for all our listeners now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't need to go see it. Although I'm slightly disappointed in his demise. Yes. It I, I it was very difficult to set up and I, I I get the impression the camera was at the wrong angle mm. because he clearly does not want to go up in flames with the special effects. Well, you know triggered. as well as I do that basically uh, if you were a performer the thing you don't do is trust the special effects guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Roger Moore did that in one of his films and nearly lost a testicle. That's right. You um, never, ever, when they say, oh, it'll be fine, and you go, you try it first. Yeah, yeah, you stand You show me explosion. first. It's the old Sylvester McCoy. Don't worry, Sylvester, you'll just hear a wind. <laughs> As it takes the back and, of Oh, yes, skin we've off. checked that safety glass for the water. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I was hearing today that it was actually a story about Bruce Dern oh. being the man who shot first shot John Wayne, the death threats yeah. he got afterwards. And uh, he was just saying that they put the squib on John Wayne and he went, will it hurt? Because he'd never, ever, in any of his films at that point, ever, ever been hit by a bullet, ever. 
<laughs> and he was quite, oh, that hurt. Yeah, it's a, it's a squib. It's a small explosive charge. It's a small bit of gunpowder. It's going to burn. Anyway, but it's just John Wayne obviously was, was, was above such being hit by things. Wasn't it Stephen Burkoff who had an accident? Hence he's got that dimple in his forehead. It wouldn't surprise me in, in the slightest. It's uh, I, I, I say I don't think you can trust anybody who's, who's setting off explosives, quite frankly. Mainly because no. I, I think people go into special effects. Because they want to make the explosions as big as they possibly can big as and possible. get away with it. I think they're all pyromaniacs, <laughs> and they and they just basically they'll they'll oh put a bit more in, just put a bit more in, just yeah, bit bit powder and yeah. bit more powder. It won't make it. I tested it on the dog, you know. <laughs> it limped for a week, but it's yeah, fine, it's fine now. now. It'll be it'll be you'll be good. Yeah. I always always love this thing when they go on about health and safety in television, you know, and because uh, yeah. I always think. I, I watch these shows where well, I don't watch these shows. I, that's I I see the trailers for these shows where they throw celebrities off bungees and things like that. And I always think, yeah, yeah, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't trust somebody else to strap the thing. <laughs> I don't care if they say, oh, but you know, they've got all these safety people. You know, you think to yourself, yeah, you check it yourself, mate. You check it yourself. I had a friend who was in Wire in the Blood. Oh, right, in the first season of Wire of the Blood. But she was only in one episode, bless her. She was playing a vulnerable, vulnerable woman yes. who ends up taking her own life and hanging herself. Oh, lovely! And she'd never been put up in one of those oh those braces. Oh, yeah, they're terrifying. Yes, yeah. mm. and she said it was really because as soon as they put the rope around the back mm. and put the the brace on the back. Mm. So it doesn't choke you. Mm. I was absolutely petrified. Well, you're completely under the control of other people's yeah. competence, aren't you? And let's face it, I've not got a lot of faith in anybody else's competence at the best of times. So <laughs> to actually have to, especially if they've got your hands tied or anything, you've got no control over your own body anymore. I always think it must be similar for those people who, you know, are in the the monster costumes on television mm. when, they, when they can't see and they're they're clamped into these chest plates or whatever you know you can't even go to the loo you know you have to rely on somebody giving you a leaning board all these things it must have been because i don't suppose they were massively well paid any of them because they're not you know the face isn't on screen no no i mean granuin was saying that um, when they put her up Mm. there they were setting up and robson green would go past Mm. and he'd grab her ankle Mm. and swing her hilarious (laughs) <laughs> and everyone else thought that was hilarious. Mm. She was bloody terrifying. Mm. And it was perfectly safe to do. She realised after a while that, yeah, actually, this is perfectly safe. And then they said, okay, we're just going to leave it there for a moment. Mm. Let's take 15 minutes for tea. Right. Grab yourself a coffee. Yeah. And it's the old Dalek operators. What about us? Yeah. And she's like, what about us? Yeah. Where's my coffee? So Robson Green gets a long stick mm. and ties a cup. And she said, these are the things that oh, they did right. you as an extra. And he lifted it up and said, drink that, love. I thought you said, you said he was going to get treated like a piñata. <laughs> he striking her until Til the, the sweets come out. out. Yes, sweet, sweet. So she's full of sweets. Oh, God, yes. Uh, very bizarre. The things people go through for entertainment. And, mm. uh, yeah, it's the fear factor. It's taken totally out of, out of your hands. Mm. Uh, what's going to happen? So, uh, yes. <laughs> so, no, John Barron survived yes. to, to live another day and to blow up the world sort of 15 years later. So. <laughs> <laughs> Hurrah! 
Oh, thank goodness for that. <laughs> I thought it was going to have a bad ending. Do you think Undermines were... I mean, obviously, I completely ruined it for everybody but now, but uh, do you think it's a good series? I mean, do you feel structurally it works, or do you feel it's a bit hidden? Structurally, it does work, and some of the stuff I was alluding to earlier about uh, the breakdown of society, mm. but the breakdown of culture... Mm. Was one of the things. Well, I it? felt very much. I mean, watching those episodes, I did feel there was a very. It felt actually quite resonant to certain things that are going on at the moment, didn't it? it th- yeah, this very much. Sort so, of people yeah. manipulating things to undermine people, to sort of stress them, to make them worried about various sort of aspects of their lives, and all these external influences trying to shape to bring down a country. And I felt that that was. It felt quite prescient at times. I mean, obviously, there's lots of things mm. in it that are complete nonsense. But that's well. One of the episodes where um, they had the two cool girls mm. played by Beryl and Dorothy, mm. Beryl and Dorothy, and they were clearly the Keeler and Rice Davis mm. characters, weren't they? Mm. And then you have poor old Derek Francis playing the equivalent of Profumo. Yes, oh, I can't say Profumo. It, yes, I can't say his name. <laughs> the Pro the, 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 the blowed edit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Profumo, Profumo. <laughs> And you're thinking to yourself, yes. oh, this is this is rather... Yes, but again, that, that's I think sometimes when we talk about television, we forget about the context. We we have to sometimes realise that when people, when they were writing science fiction, there was being an allegorical, but they were using stuff yeah. from the real world. And I think if you don't know your history, that a lot... It's not going to have the impact, Yeah, it's, it? it's lost yeah. on, on people now because they don't know that, well, that, we've talked about this in previous shows about people who'd actually lived through the war and how that affected their performance in acting later on. And I think it's, again, it's the same kind of thing. If you, as a viewer, don't understand what had been going on politically in the 60s, in the five years leading up to the show, you might not have got it. Because it's an interesting aspect of a lot of these shows. Callum does it. Public Eye does it to a certain extent. But there's a mistrust of the intellectual and there's all these yes. plots are going on in universities. People are very suspicious of students. They're very suspicious of intellectuals and academics. And again... To a certain extent, sort of the first few series of The Avengers mm. is a bit like that as well, isn't it? Well, I think that's the establishment, isn't it? That's people yeah. trying to maintain the status quo. And there's this sense that these people are trying to undermine the establishment. And what the broadcasters do, or the writers do, is they try and weight it back towards that bias, if you like, when actually, okay, yes, you most intellectuals and most academics are only really people who ask questions and when you don't want to answer those questions as again we find in politics at the moment it's very easy to lash out and and pretend that these people's opinion or their their thought processes are somehow a threat rather than to actually address the questions they are quite legitimately asking one thing i'll ask you about Mm. did you like the sort of foretelling of wikileaks (laughs) Because there's the well, like I said, it's very prescient in in a lot of ways. Yeah, because there's the television transmissions when the news are on Mm. are interrupted, aren't Mm. they? And it's all the the dirty facts, the transmissions telling you about the dirty facts about the companies and their directors Mm. and what they get up to. And it's a bit like WikiLeaks of the 1960s. And if that ever gets out, it will bring down the government. (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and we can't have that, even though maybe those things, if people knew about them, would deservedly bring down the government. But what made me chuckle happily was the fact that everyone has a routine, so they sit down and they watch the news, and this is the only time they can reach people, is by interrupting the news. Mm. Now, we just stick on the blimmin' 
internet and it's all there well again all, it, all for the taking isn't I it i think that's a fascinating aspect of again how television has changed isn't it we don't really have that group experience anymore i mean nowadays you know for yeah. decent enough ratings you'd possibly get about what three million which is what about five percent of population <laughs> <laughs> which might be enough to bring down, you know, uh, three million people on the streets might be enough to bring down something or other. But I suspect, you know, it, the, the Morecambe and Wise Christmas show might have got you a bigger <laughs> army. <laughs> Although most... Pay Peter Cushing now. <laughs> yeah, oh, I, 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 can't, I, can't, I can't go on the streets. Why not? Well, I want to see how this sketch finishes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. what i wrote <laughs> i mean of course again that's another thing that uh, russell t davis used you know, with the blood control in uh christmas invasion uh, yes. where they all end up on the roof yep. you know the, the third of the population affected by such things so again but i don't think now you could use television or indeed radio in the same way in that sort of plot i mean this this is a very 60s plot wireless beams from outer space trying to bring down the country seems it's an idea from those times i mean i imagine that the the subtext is it's russian satellites or whatever but um it well it is isn't it it's very much a case of well this could be reds under the mm. bed type thing couldn't it really it's it's still very 1950s influenced by 1950s yes. science fiction well i felt there was a the there was a sort of you almost felt there was a bit of a nigel neal plot going on there you feel that they could yeah. have done Quatermass and the Bakerlite radio, you know, it could have happened. You know. I'm just amazed that uh, they hadn't moved on from that mm. in the 60s. Uh, I thought there were a great many more fears in the 60s than because there was a lot of realizations coming around in the 60s, people opening their eyes more. Well, post the Cuban Missile Crisis. I mean, yeah. But again, this, the intellectual thing, dates back also to the Older Aston marches and everything like that, doesn't it? But I think yeah, what very much so. we forget sometimes is that the progress of technology has been very much a a parabolic curve it's not a straight line so things didn't double 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 like the 60s the 50s and the 60s the, the line's quite shallow at the bottom of the curve and then it gets a bit mm. steeper into the 70s and, and really you know it's it's only in the last say 20 years where the the sort of escalation and growth of technological development has actually got to this ridiculously high speed now where, you know, you buy your phone on a Thursday and you it's out of date on the Friday. I have problems with my phones. I don't understand them. I'm getting old. Well, I, I don't understand is, them either, the but fear. I go and talk to people in pubs about that. <laughs> my phone doesn't understand me. It won't take the coins in the top. <laughs> I've got two buttons, they say, A and, and B. You're not pressing button B, phone. this is it. You're not pressing button B quick enough. <laughs> Oh, is that what it is? <laughs> to get me to get me shilling back. What exchange are we on? Oh gosh, yes. Hello, operator, I'd like a trunk call. Excellent. Yeah. Gone are the, the days of carrying tuppence in your pockets. Talking of the sixties. <laughs> actually, I after I, I watched Undermind, I I went to another show that I had on the shelf and also had done the same thing with I'd watched the first episode and put it down and gone what the actual and that's the thing called the corridor people have you ever seen the corridor people I'm scared to watch it <laughs> <laughs> I've got it I'm looking at it because I, I, I situate my desk directly mm. opposite my my many shelves that I've yes. got here as soon as you say it and my eyes clamp on to something and I'm looking at it and I'm really scared I've never watched it because I'm really scared because your turn was, in the last show I heard you mention it, 
it's batshit crazy. Yeah, it's... And I'm not sure, quite sure if I'm ready for well, I'd, too much Well, I'd only watched crazy. episode one, so I've, I have, since I watched Undermind, I've watched the following three episodes. Mm. Now, one of the interesting things about The Corridor People is that it's only four episodes. It's either right. an unmitigated disaster and they pulled the plug as quick as they possibly could, or there was, <laughs> like or there was literally nothing else in the tank. It was just like this. <laughs> oh, um, is it that surreal? This guy, Eddie Boyd, wrote it. And right. he, I, it's like he threw absolutely everything he'd ever known about <laughs> anything into these four episodes of quite astonishingly weird television. Not necessarily good weird. That's the interesting thing. Yeah. It's it's very, very theatrical. There's a lot of breaking the fourth wall. There's a lot of Ooh. quite bizarre performances. There's a double act in it. A two policemen called what are they? Bassett and the Hound. <laughs> no, no, Blood <laughs> Blood and the Hound. Blood, blood, and, blood hound. and Hound, That's yes. Blood and I hound. can see them now yes. up on the screen. And and but but their performance wow. is very peculiar. A lot of it is very stagey. Okay. And it feels like a stage play being enacted in front of your eyes as a stage play, but it's also trying to be realistic drama. There's a, a wonderful character in it who is a, a middle-aged lady with pearls around her neck, and she yeah. she is also an assassin, but she unfortunately doesn't make it to the end of the series. And you kind of think, that's the best character. <laughs> <laughs> you could have killed her all. But it features uh, John Sharp. Now, now, John Sharp, much later in his career, was Biggins in uh, All Creatures Great and Small. He was the, the, gr yeah. the grim old farmer who used to give the Irrits the right old time and was always out to save a few quid and, and everything like that. But, uh, yeah, yeah, corridor people, I, I mean, I genuinely would say to you have to see it. It's The sad thing is that there are four episodes, all, of course, are based around an idea of victimhood, so you get victim as bird watcher. Now, that's the opening episode. Okay. And then victim as white bait, which is a fish, as you may have noticed. And then the, the third one is victim as red, which of course might have, shall we say, certain communist undertones to the, the story. Right. And and the last one is victim as black, which unfortunately does play quite heavily on certain race issues. Race. Now, yeah. some of it's treated in a slightly more sympathetic way some of it really isn't so the fourth episode is is a difficult watch for the modern viewer mm, the right. other thing is that uh, of course it features elizabeth shepherd who who was elizabeth shepherd was people. the first choice for mrs peel in the avengers oh, why did i say tomorrow people how silly of me give me a slap it's all right well, she, <clears> she <throat> may well have been in the tomorrow people as well but no 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 it's because um, the character's called Elizabeth, mm. and my brain was just not functioning there. As I've heard, this is quite a weird series. Anything mm. was entirely possible. I genuinely think if you just pull it off the shelf and watch it, you will sit there with your jaw, jaw hitting the ground going, what the actual... <laughs> <laughs> well, a trivia moment, just to go off on one day. You know that Elizabeth Shepard does appear in The Avengers. Yes. As Mrs. Peel, or rather her hand yes. does, Woo! doesn't she? <laughs> Look at my, my appealing hand. Woo! My appealing hand is turning the page <laughs> of a book. And, and that's it. So if ever, if ever you had strange dreams about Diana Rigg, it may possibly be. <laughs> so you're, you're recommending Corridor, people? I, I'm not saying I recommend it. I'm just going to say <laughs> go in and, okay. and give it a go. And if you're The other fascinating thing to me, because it's a Granada thing. So, yeah. so again, it has quite an interesting cast, although quite a few of the cast 
like in a lot of shows you've never heard of again. But what gets me about it is that the it's either the quality of the cameras or it's the quality of the recording equipment but there's quite a lot of damage when the camera changes there's quite a lot of camera interference oh, right, yeah now i don't know whether that's from the original actually in the studio that's maybe why they just abandoned it it's because it's it looks quite shonky they couldn't sell it it might have actually had yeah. a very local uh, release but it's uh considering that at this time granada would have been six years into coronation street which you know fast turnaround lots of cameras uh mm -hmm. didn't seem to have the same kind of interference pattern problems when the camera switched i don't know whether it was a different granada studio or what what was happening there but it is actually quite what happened then you know so mm. uh, well, i'm reading from uh, a little journal piece on here mm. that it was made for it was converted to dv uh, to the dvd on 625 mm. line from 405 mm. So that might be why it looks a bit shonky. Well, I mean, it's actually when the camera shot changes. When it, the old turret moves around on the camera. Well, no, it's a... it's more of a, there's a kind of, there's a, you know, it, I think you need to see it to believe it. There's, there's a kind of in, <laughs> picture interference that you actually start to wonder because of the experimental theatre nature of it, whether it's deliberate, you know. <laughs> oh, goodness. But anyway, that's about wow. spies. Okay. Yeah, it's Department K. Well, that and, was not what, and they're all along the corridor. what I was expecting, you see. It is a spy drama of sorts, although it's a very, very surreal uh, spy drama. <laughs> Interestingly enough, when you think about the... Strangely enough, it's, it's prompted me to rewatch uh, again, the supposedly most surreal spy drama, The Prisoner. I've actually picked that up again this week to to give it another go. And, uh, and of course, that features John Sharp as one of the... Uh, number two's in it so there is a connection which is possibly why i went there but when you look at that all on, on beautifully static film <laughs> yeah and uh, yeah. and connecting again back to uh, undermined and the performance of our our stars it's it's kind of it is quite uh, no there's an intensity to mcguin there is an intensity to mcguin mm. which i think oh absolutely he, he he create i think by the, the merest fact when he created the series and he took this general control of the whole behemoth he does the have the air of a man on the complete edge of a nervous breakdown yeah entire and he's taking he's basically taking everybody over with him over the edge of mm. the cliff with him and it's this panic and this anxiety and this fear mm. seems to get a hell of a lot of good performances out of mm. people i could imagine he was a driver to work with and an absolute ogre to work mm. with Overopinionated, big-headed, short-tempered, but extremely talented on creating something that is unique. Mm. And I think this is what is forgotten now, is how unique the prisoner was mm. then. How powerful it was. And it's an anti-hero. How do you get people to love an anti-hero who's not going to escape? Mm. Each week he's <laughs> going to be stuck on this bleeding island. Well, I could argue, of course, that uh, corridor people did it all before. No, no, no. <laughs> well, uh, you want you surreal, mate? No. <laughs> I thought corridor people, because I hadn't read anything about it, I thought corridor people was about a group of people that lived in a block of flats and weird things happened in the corridor. Well, someone asked me. <laughs> someone asked me when I was watching. Uh, when I said I was watching corridor people, they sort of said, "Oh, is that a children's thing?" They thought it was. You know, I thought it know. was. Yeah, I thought it was. But it's not, is it? <laughs> Although weirdly, and of course, one of the. I say this conversation keeps uh, turning back on itself. There's a 
an episode of Undermind, which is all based around a children's puppet character. Oh, gosh, yes. Mm. So, you know, <laughs> everything's connected. You know, you start to think sometimes that television in the 60s specifically, actually, the gloves were off a bit. The difference between children's television and adult television was quite limited. Families would watch together and obviously... Oh, yeah, there'd be watch with mother type things. But when you move outside of that to that group of children that are becoming teenagers mm. into adulthood, that's where... The periphery starts to blur a lot. Well, you've got three channels, and yeah. basically the family watches together around one set in the living room. And ultimately, there wasn't so much... Television didn't have that idea of the watershed, did it, at that point? It, it, you, no. You basically, no. you could put a quite hard-hitting drama on at eight o'clock. And if people said this might be unsuitable for people of a nervous disposition, you might pack the children off to bed or whatever. But generally, a lot of television was watched en masse in the family or, or people had real hobbies or they went off to listen to the radio or whatever they did, clean the cat or something. But, um, <laughs> you know, it was it was a different kind of experience. And I imagine that that sort of blurring the lines sort of happened all the way through. I mean, I remember my dad really, really loved those five-minute films before the news, you know, Ivor the Engine, uh, yeah. Magic Roundabout, and stuff like that. And they were kind of produced on two or three levels, weren't they? They were produced to appeal to the adults, but also to really be children, sort of subversive children's programming, really. But there was a lot of, shall we say, hidden messages for the grown-ups in that five minutes before the news with your rhubarb and your... <laughs> And like I say, you're, you're um, <laughs> nogging the nog and all that kind of thing. I think the parents, most of the, the ones who said, oh, I'm just uh, switching on for the news, dear. I need the set to warm up. <laughs> oh, what's this? I'll watch this while the news is, is warming up. And I think they were all bigger fans of real Dougal rather than Robert Dougal, I think you'll find. <laughs> I think that pushing the extremes, as we were talking about, mm. with the violence or the dodgy nature, mm. I mean, Granada was extremely gritty, and I think people forget how gritty Granada mm. could be and how down to earth. Everyone seems to forget about how Granada starts off, how it, it lays its foundation to become what it is mm. today. Um, they take, oh, yeah, it's nice and cosy, it's Coronation Street, mm. it's perhaps a drama. Mm. But no, it, everyone sort of thinks, oh, Thames was the hard hitter. Mm. But if you look at things like Big Bread, Winner Hawk, mm. That was extremely, well, as you said, no watershed. Yeah. There was, um, I remember a, a scene I watched in that of the guy getting the acid thrown yeah. in his face. And that was an extremely violent series. Mm. But even things like Tomorrow People back you know, at Thames, for, for children's television, really now you sort of look at some of the stuff they do and you think, no. And I think that's the same. Yeah. I mean, Granada, I recently watched, I watched the first four episodes. I managed to get hold of the first four episodes of Coronation Street. And apart from the fact that I was surprised that Leonard Swindley was in it that early, that's by the by. But uh, oh. again, it's okay. 60s Coronation Street, certainly in that first year or the first few months, is hmm. it's astonishingly close to the kitchen sink dramas of the 50s, you know, those Saturday night, Sunday morning thing. It's got the same kind of vibe. You've got poverty and lots of people scrimping around to get a shilling for the meter and, and you've been in my purse so you can go to the pub and all that stuff. It's... It's a very hard-hitting, brutal, from the north, Granada. You know, it, it's a very hard-hitting world, I feel. I, and I always feel that maybe maybe the world in black and white always feels slightly more gritty. It can't help it. 
you don't sense the glamour even you know say early avengers is gritty you know and it only oh, uh, only yeah, really when it goes dark. goes on to film that it starts to get a little bit more fantastical i mean early avengers on Steed is quite can be quite a hateful character to a certain extent. There's the one episode where they go on holiday together yeah. with Mrs. M- Mrs. Gale. Well, he's an unrepentant uh, cad, isn't he? Really, sometimes a manipulator. Yeah, he manipulates yeah. things. And, yes, and he's not that kind-hearted, whimsical chap with his metal bowler. He's quite a nasty assassin to a certain mm. extent, who will stop at nothing mm. for British security. Well, he certainly manipulates Mrs. Gale's character quite a lot, and, and she calls him up on it on several occasions you know although quite a few occasions yes although actually uh, never actually never actually tips him over and throws him in a grave (laughs) (laughs) yes knocking him unconscious quick go to the ads he's not gonna stop that out (laughs) which i sit and i watch that Mm. and that is one hell of a kick Mm. that is one hell of a kick well, I was going to ask you, because uh, obviously we touched briefly on, on children's programming, there has been yeah. an announcement recently about closing down. Is it C? Is it CBBC or CBBC? Which, which is, CBBC. CBBC is going. That's the one that's going. I believe so, yeah. okay. he says, because I, I, um, I'd heard something, mm. but I hadn't gone into right. it, because it's going with the BBC4 thing, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, BBC4 and CBBC, I think, is going, and also uh, 4 it. Extra, the radio channel. Uh, that's it. Which, of course, are the only three I never watch. But there we go. That's <laughs> CBBC Radio Yeah, well, pretty extra. much. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it, yeah. it's kind of that's what, you know, of, of the BBC's output these days. It's the channels I probably uh, most yeah. uh, hang um, around with. But, BBC4 is my favourite channel. Well, I was really going to ask you, because, like I said, we talked about the five minutes before the news thing but obviously there was at that time in our lives there was children's television one from about four till about half five things like blue peter jack and ori play school were all in that sort of hour and a half yeah and all that got shifted over to these channels these separate channels when you know digital started to happen do you personally think that as a piece of cultural necessity it will become necessary to put children's programming back on the main channel and kick pointless to the curb and or you know whatever's on BBC Two in that sort of hour and a half. There will have to be some dedicated children's broadcasting again. Or do you just think that that sort of television's gone forever? I think that kind of television has gone mm. forever. I'm afraid because there are so many distractions now. Mm. The electronic kind. Mm. The it- you don't think there's a necessity for that sort of no I, I think unfortunately our market now with freeview mm. and sky and other other companies are available mm. it's the fact that you have nickelodeon mm. you have all the other ones catch up mm. and all all the other children's channels that they're all showing fast moving colorful cartoons mm. i think the days of what we would class as our childhood programs are gone mm. yes when we had the clangers come back. It's such a wonderful revival, mm. but it wasn't the same. No, and it it couldn't be. Made well, it couldn't the be same. the same anyway for you because you're forty no. years older. I mean, it's it's a different experience <laughs> anyway, isn't it? I don't know. I can still curl up on the sofa with my blanket, <laughs> <laughs> sucking my thumb and watching the. No, actually, no. You're quite yeah. right. Sorry, I was miles away. Um, well, no, I just I think don't... that you know something. For example, like Blue Peter. I mean, or 
it's equivalent magpie that was on the other side. Uh, although was it an equivalent? Yeah, I think um, it, it was always it was all his days were always going to be numbered, numbered once it was taken off of mainstream television, yes. and it is a slow shutdown because if they'd have taken it off of mainstream television, there would have been you can't do mm. this. This is traditional. But if you hide it away on another channel mm. and slowly but surely whittle it down. And then you go, well, CBBC, we're going to close that down. Well, Paul would tell you that's the neighbour's argument as well, wouldn't he? I mean, that's take it off the main... A yeah. main channel, put it on another channel, and then move it around the schedules, and boom, you know, next thing you know, we can quietly get rid of it. You know, although I don't think yeah. they're going quietly, but there we go. <laughs> but <laughs> something like uh, Blue Peter with its its tradition and stuff, again, shared heritage and all that. But the, I mean, there is still the plan is for these channels to still be available online. So they're not going completely. But, I mean, they tried that with BBC Three and bought it back, didn't they? So it, it's, it feels an unusual move, shall we say. I think BBC Three started to become popular. Didn't we have Gavin and Stacey on BBC Three? I Is that BBC Three? I, I, I'm not a Gavin stuff, and Stacey Stuff that hopped. I mean, I think, I mean, back in the day, I mean, Torchwood started off on Three, didn't it? And popped yeah. up the channels. And there are other shows that have done that. But they are. it's a very good place for trying stuff out. But Yeah, it's the next generation mm. of alternative comedy. Comedy was coming. But for me, BBC Four has become the channel that they actually linear broadcasting basically seems to be doomed in that sense. But yeah, but it's become the channel where they show the old stuff. Though that's why I want that's why the old stuff or the the Swedish stuff. Anything that informs, educates, and develops, Mm. they want to remove. Mm. That's that. It gives it that impression. That that sounds like grumpy old man Mm. syndrome. It's not because we all like our documentaries in certain ways, mm. and I like my documentaries mm. in BBC Four ways. Mm. I like watching time shift documentaries. Mm. I prefer it like that. Mm. But that's been taken off now, and you've got things like History Hub on the internet mm. and places like that. So you have this more accessible stuff on the internet again, but, and you don't have to wait a week. But for do it. you find that I think because I used to get this with bookshops. You know, bear with me on this. I remember bookshops. But I used to find that if I went into a bookshop, I might pick up half a dozen books I'd never thought of, never heard of, never known anything about, and thought, oh, that looks interesting, that looks interesting. The minute I hadn't been in a bookshop for a while and I was just going online, I was only getting offered the books that they thought I'd be interested in. And so my book buying changed. And I think with documentaries... When there is a linear broadcaster, there are still a lot of people who will just sit down and this came on and they might change the channel, but they might not. And you might go, this looks interesting. And quite often stuff pops up on on some of the channels in the evening and I'm thinking, oh, I'll watch this. I watched a programme on um, Easy Listening last Friday and Hmm. I wouldn't have sought that out. I didn't even know it was on. But we switched to that channel and thought, this looks interesting and ended up watching an hour of it. You know, And you just think, is that one of the beauties of linear television, is that the passive audience, in the same way that if I happen to see a feature films on, I might get sucked into it, but I might not have gone and taken it off my shelf. In that same way, the passive audience will stick with something and maybe ooh, that becomes an interest. Whereas if you say, oh, well, I'm only interested in this, 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 this and this, I won't, you know, I'll never find out about something I'm not yeah. particularly interested in. No, no, I, 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 I agree with you. We shouldn't have our interest dictated to us mm. by an algorithm. Mm. 
that presumes a lot. Because if you read it enough, you'll believe that's what you're interested in. And you and I know that's complete, absolute hodcom, and we have free thought about what we're interested in. But with the BBC4 argument, they could turn around and say, well, hold on a moment, a lot of the programmes that we used to produce on BBC4 are now on BBC2. So are we going to have a transfer of these documentaries, Mm. like the Dr Lucy Worsley's Mm. and those ilk, Mm. going to BBC2 now, um, or sometimes even being stretched Mm. onto BBC1? But there's a lot of talk about, I don't know, cultural vandalism about these kinds of things. There's always talk about that. Whenever the status quo changes... Mm there will always be a group of people that says, well, no, mm. um, I mean, how, how are people going mm. to experience what I experienced? But if you go to the Netflix model, because Ooh. the Netflix model is you, you log in and you will get presented with screen after screen after screen of trailers for things that might be similar to something you've watched. Or there's a sort of option where there's new this week or, you know. But actually, sometimes to find the really interesting stuff takes some doing and do you think viewers are actually proactive enough to still seek out stuff if they've not heard of it i mean a lot of people will watch a program because people are talking about it at work or because people have said i've seen this you know it's in the newspapers even i mean i know people don't read newspapers anymore either but if people are talking about say line of duty and they go oh what's that and they go oh well that's that show i've been watching oh you can watch it all here that kind of word of mouth thing can only really occur if enough people know about something and so there there might be a lot of television that a lot of people just don't find stuff out and do you think that's part of a well i wouldn't say a criminal conspiracy because that's wrong but a a cultural conspiracy to dumb us down yeah no i don't think it's dumb us down Mm. i think it's more a case of tv companies Mm fighting and paying for rights to have their trailers Mm. front and centre at at Netflix. Mm. Because by the time you've been bored to death Mm. by watching all these trailers, Mm. you're not going to go onto the general menu and go, right, I want to look up this category, I'm going to look down. People aren't going to, Mm. people aren't like that anymore. Mm. They're not as diligent as ourselves Mm. in looking for a particular something. Mm. I think they're bombarded with so much sight mm. and noise. There's enough to see anyway as it is, but, yeah. but the, the actual the stuff that's front and centre isn't necessarily the stuff that, I don't know, it's, 20, 30 years ago stuff, you might have made a career out yeah. of or something like that. Absolutely. Mm. Uh, you find that with a lot of documentary television, don't you? Yeah. Because a lot of documentaries nowadays are made up of clips of old television programmes. And yes. they're just cobbled together and then repackaged mm. and sent out as a new programme. Mm. I can't abide that. No. So, ultimately, in previous shows, we've talked about 1984 and Orwell's vision of the future. But also, at the beginning of this show, we talked about Undermined and, and how people were being mentally manipulated. See, I did finally manage to bring us back round to this as we approach the hour. <laughs> is, no, I'm living with the corridor what, people at what, the moment. Well, what I'm wondering <laughs> is, in the end, is is a lot of this, and I suppose I'm trying to pay devil's advocate here, is a lot of what we're talking about tonight. Is it about manipulating a population to undermine things? Or am I just being paranoid because the beams are being beamed at my head and I haven't got my tinfoil hat on? 
Well, taking my tinfoil hat off for a moment. Mm. Oh, dear. Um, I think well, that's smart. we are more easily... <laughs> Must answer the question. Must answer. Must... Um, I can't... Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'll do that again. Must answer the question. It was in your tin hat. That's the problem. It was in my tin hat. I'm going to have to put it back on yeah, again put, now. The, 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 the thoughts escaped. More... I think... People are more influenced now by jump cuts mm. and noise mm. rather than substance and quality. Mm. Some people will disagree with me, but I'm talking mainstream here. I'm not talking about niche programs like historical documentaries. No. But even then, those nowadays, they're almost given a scripted subplot mm. to work them along. So mm. it's the trailers become more theatrical. Mm. Than selling it. If you can imagine the benign and boring trailers that we used to get in the seventies and eighties, because mm. somebody said that clip will do, mm. put it in. Although I, most of the programs now, I, I, the trailer comes on and I go, "Yep, won't be watching that then." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but that's I'm me. A, I mean, I, I, I get that. No, I'm, no, I'm an unusual. I'm the same, but I don't know if it's an age mm. thing or I'm looking at it. Going, and again, this is the feeding of the sweets, mm. isn't it? To the the child who's had too much mm. to eat, feed it a bit more, feed mm. it a bit more. It's the sugar. It's yeah, the but sugar. You, I mean, you could argue that modern viewers are much more savvy, but they've also they are bombarded with so much choice that really the quality will out because you know if something's rubbish, people will ignore it. Ultimately, it comes back to how much you're going to make out of it. To be fair, let's be cynical about it. This is how much companies are going to make out mm. of it and to go on to their next project. So, but discovering old shows actually that have been running for five years and you've never watched is actually it's a very good model these days. Or it's a very good reason for keeping a show on even if no one's watching it, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. Which is what we hope for for this show. So, thank you very much, Warren, <laughs> for your time once thank again. Thank you for listening to my witty. Taking thank another you. tour around the telly. And uh, we will doubtless, well, I'll, do you know what it's like? I'll have you back in the blink of a monkey's eye. <laughs> um, okay, my monkey's blinking at me. <laughs> you take care. And you too, Martin. Good speaking to you. Many thanks to Warren Cummings for once again joining me to dig into some of the lesser-known corners of 1960s television. I do hope he enjoys the corridor people, although I worry that it might just be slightly too close to home for him. Warren will be back with us again fairly soon, and in the meantime you can always find him presenting the Cinematic Sausage podcast. And so, that's just about it for yet another Vision on Sound. Thanks once again to everyone at Fab Radio International for all that they do to keep us away from our alien controllers, and naturally... Thanks to all of you for listening. As ever, I have been Martin and this has been Vision on Sound. Goodbye for now and take care.